Welcome to the February 15th, 2024 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll report on the findings from a study evaluating the long-term outcomes of pulmonary embolism in children and adolescents. Discuss a new mechanism for hereditary angioedema caused by a methionine 379 to lysine substitution in kininogens. And learn more about predictors of unsustained minimal residual disease negativity in multiple myeloma patients. We first examine data in the blood article entitled Long-Term Outcomes of Pulmonary Embolism in Children and Adolescents by Denise Bastis from the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada, and colleagues. Thrombotic events among hospitalized children are on the rise. According to U.S. hospital admissions data between 2001 and 2019, the frequency of pediatric venous thrombosis in tertiary care institutions has increased from 34 to 106 per 10,000 admissions. Pulmonary embolism accounted for approximately 10% of these VTE events. Similarly, a second study showed that pediatric tertiary care institutions recorded a 200% increase in pediatric pulmonary embolism between 2001 and 2014. Pulmonary embolism carries a high risk of long-term complications. Approximately 50% of adults will develop complications, or post-PE syndrome, after an acute pulmonary embolism event. Post-PE syndrome in adults manifests as new or progressive dyspnea, or exercise intolerance which may lead to reduced quality of life, loss of productivity, and increased healthcare costs. However, the long-term consequences of pulmonary embolism in the pediatric population are not well characterized. Therefore, the goal of the current study was to investigate the frequency of chronic complications of pulmonary embolism in the pediatric population and to understand whether the frequency of long-term complications is associated with the presence of underlying conditions at the time of diagnosis. The study enrolled children between the ages of 0 and 18 years with a diagnosis of acute pulmonary embolism who survived for at least six months after their diagnosis and were followed up at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. The monitoring protocol consisted of clinical assessment and cardiac, pulmonary, and exercise testing starting three to six months after pulmonary embolism. Study outcomes included the resolution of pulmonary embolism, objectively documented thrombosis reoccurrence, and death, as well as functional outcomes, such as dyspnea, pulmonary function and ventilatory impairments, abnormal echocardiogram findings, impaired aerobic capacity, and post-PE syndrome. The frequency of outcomes was compared between patients with and without underlying conditions. A total of 165 patients experienced a pulmonary embolism during the study period. 15 patients were excluded from the study for early death, lung transplantation, or transfer to another hospital, resulting in a final cohort of 150 patients. 
study subjects were followed for a median of 521 days and had a median of three outpatient visits. The median age at pulmonary embolism diagnosis was 16 years. Underlying conditions were present in 61% of patients, including autoimmune disease in 22%, cancer in 13%, and infectious and cardiac disease in 5% each. 17% of patients had one or more additional comorbidities. Study findings further revealed that pulmonary embolism did not resolve in 29% of patients. Recurrence happened in 9% and death in 5%. Approximately one-third of patients had at least one documented abnormal functional finding at follow-up. 31% had ventilatory impairments. 31% had impaired aerobic capacity. 26% had dyspnea and 22% had an abnormal diffusing capacity of the lungs to carbon monoxide. Most of these abnormalities were transient. The rates of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, cardiac impairment, and chronically abnormal echocardiograms were low at 0.7%, 0.7%, and 4% respectively, which is comparable to previous studies. Patients with underlying conditions had a higher rate of recurrence, more pulmonary function and ventilatory impairments, and poorer exercise capacity. Subjective dyspnea was observed in 26% of children in follow-up three or more months following pulmonary embolism, with no difference in frequency between those with or without an underlying condition. Similarly, 31% of children had impaired aerobic capacity on exercise testing, again, with no difference in those with or without an underlying condition. The authors concluded that exercise intolerance was mostly due to deconditioning rather than to respiratory or cardiac limitation, highlighting the importance of physical activity promotion in children with pulmonary embolism. In an accompanying commentary, Marilyn Manko Johnson from the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus and Children's Hospital Colorado in Aurora, Colorado, notes that the findings of Bostas and collaborators show that the outcome of pulmonary embolism in most pediatric patients is excellent, despite a high proportion of short-term abnormal test results. Moreover, this study points to a very low rate of long-term poor cardiopulmonary function or diminished aerobic capacity, which is likely due to patients having healthy hearts and lungs before a pulmonary embolism episode. Manko Johnson further notes that this paper has implications for clinical practice, since most of the abnormal outcomes were related to exercise intolerance due to deconditioning, often in the setting of severe underlying conditions. He suggests that clinicians should encourage a return to aerobic sports and activities as soon as physically feasible in those patients who were able to exercise before their PE event. In addition, the study once again highlights the relationship between contraceptive use and pulmonary embolism in adolescent females, begging the question of whether progesterone-only hormonal therapies may be a better option due to the smaller risk of this rare complication. Future studies should investigate the best approaches for exercise rehabilitation in both patients who were previously well, as well as those with significant medical conditions following an episode of pulmonary embolism. Finally, the psychosocial issues that may be affecting the parents in their decision to let the children return to strenuous physical activity following an ICU stay 
should also be studied. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the Blood article entitled A Mechanism for Hereditary Angioedema Caused by a Methionine-379-2-Lysine Substitution in Kininogens by S. Kent Dixon from Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, and colleagues. Hereditary angioedema is a swelling disorder characterized by bouts of tissue swelling involving the oropharyngeal mucosa, subcutaneous tissues of the face and hands, the genitals, and the gastrointestinal tract. In most cases, angioedema is caused by increased activity of the plasma calocrine kinin system, or KKS, which causes excessive formation of the vasoactive peptide bradykinin. The physiologic effects of bradykinin are primarily mediated through specific bradykinin receptors expressed in many tissues. This peptide normally plays an important role in blood vessel permeability and tone, as well as in promoting edema and pain at injury sites. The calocrine kinin system is comprised of the zymogens precalocrine and factor 12, and the substrate high molecular weight kininogen. The activity of precalocrine and factor 12 are regulated by the serpin C1 inhibitor. In most patients with hereditary angioedema, KKS dysregulation is caused by reduced levels of plasma C1 inhibitor activity to approximately 5 to 30% of normal levels. Reduced C1 inhibitor leads to overproduction of the small peptide bradykinin, which is cleaved from high molecular weight kininogen, followed by the development of angioedema. However, in at least 10% of patients with hereditary angioedema, mutations in genes coding for proteins other than the C1 inhibitor have been implicated. Studies to date have identified mutations in factor 12, heparin sulfate 3O-sulfotransferase 6, angiopoietin 1, myoferlin, and plasminogen as additional genetic causes of hereditary angioedema. The goal of the current study was to explore the effects of a missense mutation in the KNG1 gene that causes methionine-379 to be replaced with lysine-379 in both high-molecular-weight and low-molecular-weight kininogen. This site is adjacent to the cleavage site at the N-terminus of the bradykinin peptide. This mutation has been previously identified as very likely being causative in a small number of patients with hereditary angioedema. The proposed mechanisms included the production of an altered and more active form of bradykinin, or an increased susceptibility of kininogen to cleavage by PKA. However, neither mechanism has been confirmed in studies to date. In the current study, the authors utilized a series of biochemical assays to better understand how the KNG1 gene mutation contributes to the development of hereditary angioedema. Recombinant wild-type MET379 and the mutant LYSE379 versions of both high-molecular weight and low-molecular weight kininogen were expressed in HEC293 cells. Mass spectrometry was used to analyze the kinins released by either PKA or plasmin from recombinant kininogens. The findings revealed that the lysine substitution did not affect the PKA-catalyzed release of kinin 
from high or low molecular weight kininogens. However, the lysine substitution at position 379 created a novel cleavage site for plasmin, a fibrinolytic protease, not present without the mutation. Cleavage of the mutant kininogen by plasmin led to a form of bradykinin with an additional amino acid at the end terminus, also known as lysbradykinin or calidin. The total amount of kinin released from lysine-substituted high and low molecular weight kininogens was substantially greater than from wild-type high and low molecular weight kininogen. The authors concluded that the methionine to lysine substitutions make high and low molecular weight kininogens better plasmin substrates, reinforcing the relationship between fibrinolysis and kinin generation. In an accompanying commentary, Sidney Strickland from Rockefeller University in New York notes that the paper by Dixon and collaborators is an elegant example of how understanding the biochemical mechanism based on a genetic mutation can provide insights into the pathogenesis of disease. Namely, in many cases, identifying the causative genetic mutation does not immediately reveal the mechanism. Here, the authors demonstrate that lysine substitution creates a novel cleavage site for plasmin. Plasmin is ubiquitously present in blood and plays a critical role in removing microclots that can disrupt blood flow and promote inflammation. Having a kininogen that is highly susceptible to plasmin cleavage could promote bradykinin production and initiate symptoms associated with hereditary angioedema. In line with these results, it has been found that a single point mutation in the plasminogen gene can also cause hereditary angioedema. The plasmin variant that derives from this mutation is more effective at cleaving kininogen and releasing bradykinin. Together, these two studies indicate that cleavage of kininogen can be a disease-causing mechanism for hereditary angioedema, which has potential therapeutic implications. It implies that drugs specifically targeting PKA or activated factor 12 may be less effective in carriers of kininogen lyse 379 than in patients with other forms of hereditary angioedema. Instead, agents that block the bradykinin receptor or inhibit fibrinolysis may be more appropriate for patients with angioedema that is primarily plasmin-driven. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review two articles in blood that explore the predictors of disease recurrence despite achieving minimal residual disease negativity with first-line therapy in newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. The first article is entitled Predictors of Unsustained Minimal Residual Disease Negativity in Multiple Myeloma Patients by Mattia D'Agostino from the University of Torino in Torino, Italy, and colleagues. Prior research has established that achieving MRD negative status is the strongest predictor of long-term outcomes in patients with multiple myeloma. Current therapies for multiple myeloma result in MRD negativity rates between 50 and 80%, even with a strict cutoff of 10 to the minus 6. Although MRD negativity does not necessarily translate into a cure, the reduction in clone size may reduce clonal evolution, leading to improved overall survival. The current challenge in multiple myeloma 
is moving from achieving MRD negativity to sustaining it over time. Indeed, little is known about the factors predictive of loss of MRD status. The goal of the current study was to explore the impact of baseline risk factors, treatment, and time to MRD achievement on the risk of losing MRD-negative status in MRD-negative patients enrolled in the FORTE clinical trial. The FORTE trial enrolled transplant-eligible patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma aged 65 or younger. Patients were treated with carfilzomib and dexamethasone with either lenalidomide or cyclophosphamide for induction and post-transplant consolidation, followed by lenalidomide with or without carfilzomib for maintenance. Two-thirds of patients had a transplant. All patients who achieved MRD negativity by multiparametric flow cytometry were included in the current analysis. MRD was evaluated by multi-parameter flow cytometry at pre-maintenance in patients achieving greater than or equal to very good partial response, and then monitored every six months thereafter. The primary endpoint of the analysis was the cumulative incidence of loss of MRD-negative status, or the emergence of progressive disease, starting from the first MRD-negative evaluation. Secondary endpoints were factors predictive of losing MRD-negative status over time. A total of 310 out of 474, or 65% of patients, achieved MRD-negativity. The median time to first MRD-negativity was 8.9 months. After a median follow-up of 50.4 months from MRD-negativity, 60% of patients were still MRD-negative and progression-free, 39% lost their MRD-negative status, and 1% died without progression. Interestingly, the timing of the first MRD-negativity had an impact on the risk of MRD resurgence. Specifically, reaching the first MRD negativity after the start of consolidation predicted a higher risk of unsustained MRD negativity versus pre-consolidation. Multivariate analysis revealed that a higher risk of unsustained MRD negativity was associated with patients who had amplification of chromosome 1Q and greater than or equal to two concomitant high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities, circulating tumor cells at baseline and time to reach MRD negativity post-consolidation versus pre-consolidation. During the first two years of maintenance, patients receiving carfilzomib lenalidomide versus lenalidomide alone had a lower risk of losing MRD negativity, namely 20% compared to 33%. The second article presented in the scope of this discussion is entitled Predictors of Unsustained Measurable Residual Disease Negativity in Transplant-Eligible Multiple Myeloma Patients by Camila Guerrero from the University of Navarra Clinic and Cancer Center, Navarra, Spain, and colleagues. The role of MRD negativity as the endpoint for treatment duration and adaptation is being investigated in numerous clinical trials. Ongoing studies are focused on examining both the effects of intensification and or prolongation of therapy in transplant-eligible patients with persistent MRD, 
as well as treatment cessation in those showing sustained MRD negativity during maintenance. Emerging evidence from these studies suggests that the MRD status of patients is more dynamic than previously thought. Importantly, recent data has reaffirmed a clear correlation between loss of MRD negativity and poorer survival outcomes. In the current study, the authors aimed to develop a predictive model that accurately assesses the risk of MRD resurgence and or progressive disease in multiple myeloma patients who have achieved undetectable MRD by next-generation flow cytometry. The study analyzed newly diagnosed and transplant-eligible multiple myeloma patients enrolled in either the GEM2012 MENOS-65 or the GEM2014 main clinical trials, who achieved undetectable MRD by next-generation sequencing. The GEM2012 MENOS-65 is an open-label Phase three trial where 458 patients received six induction cycles of bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, followed by an autologous stem cell transplant. Patients with at least minimal response were randomized in the GEM2014 main trial to receive maintenance with lenalidomide and dexamethasone or lenalidomide and dexamethasone plus ixazomib for two years, after which they continued with lenalidomide and dexamethasone for three additional years if MRD positive or discontinued therapy if MRD negative. Progressive disease was defined according to the 2006 International Myeloma Working Group response criteria, and next-generation flow cytometry was performed to assess the levels of circulating tumor cells in peripheral blood at diagnosis. After a median follow-up of 73 months since the first negative MRD assessment, 42% of patients showed MRD resurgence and or progressive disease. International Staging System 3 and the presence of 0.01% or greater circulating tumor cells were the only prognostic factors at diagnosis that predicted MRD resurgence. Failure to achieve MRD negativity after induction also predicted a higher risk of MRD resurgence and or progressive disease. The five-year rate of MRD resurgence and or progressive disease was 16%, in patients with no risk factors, 33% in patients with one risk factor, and 57% in patients with two or more risk factors. The authors concluded that these easily measurable risk factors could help in the selection of patients for whom treatment cessation after MRD negativity is being considered. In an accompanying commentary, Shaji Kumar from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, notes that the results of studies by D'Agostino and Guerrero shed new light on an important problem of maintaining MRD-negative status in multiple myeloma and the factors that may drive the inability to sustain MRD negativity. Identifying these factors is critical since it may allow for a more personalized approach to treating patients. The studies further highlight the heterogeneity of multiple myeloma, with disease biology being the primary determinant of different outcomes. Unfortunately, despite significant improvements in therapies, patients with high-risk disease continue to do poorly. These two studies also raise several important questions. 
One is whether even deeper responses are needed in these patients, and if this can be achieved by increasing treatment intensity or by incorporating novel therapies with different mechanisms of action. Another area that requires further investigation is the need for less invasive, frequent blood-based assessments for early detection of disease resurgence using sensitive mass spectrometric approaches. The fact that some of the studied patients presented with extramedullary disease also highlights the need for periodic imaging during monitoring. Finally, what remains unclear is whether sustenance of MRD negativity for longer than a certain period will completely eliminate the risk of disease recurrence, whether it can serve as a surrogate for a cure or if recurrence is inevitable. Kumar concludes that longer follow-up studies are needed to answer this important question. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.